This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Hard to believe, but today marks the two-year anniversary of Neil Bantelman's arrest. A protest is occurring right now outside the Indonesian consulate to draw attention to this situation. And tonight, a vigil vigil in Calgary will also be held. To talk more about all of this and give us an update on Neil Bantelman, his brother Guy Bantelman is with us now. Hello, Guy. How are you today? Not too bad, Scott. Yourself? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, Before we get into things, remind everybody what happened two years ago today. Uh, Two years ago today, my brother was uh, detained on uh, allegations of uh, of sexual assault uh, on a group of boys at a school he taught at in uh, in Indonesia, in Jakarta. He, along with a teaching assistant and six other cleaners, were accused uh, the past two years of seeing a a variety of trials with convictions and acquittals on appeal, and at this point, uh, unfortunately, uh, all well, seven of the eight individuals are incarcerated. One individual was, um, well, police say he committed suicide, but we'll say he was murdered during um, during uh, investigation and interrogation. Uh, where are we now? What, give us an update on on what has happened of late. Uh, Neil's situation is basically a judicial review that is uh, going on. Neil was, as I said, acquitted in August of 2015 by a high court, and that acquittal was overturned uh, in February of this year by the Supreme Court. And at this point, we are now working on what they call a judicial review, which is a review of the, the, the judge's actions, the legal process, and any new evidence that is available for the Supreme Court to reconsider the conviction. Any idea when any of this is going to be heard? No, at this point, unfortunately, we do not um, have a time frame. It's a, it's a very rare occurrence that a case gets to this level, um, so there are no deadlines. It's very fluid, and we will obviously work on you know, perfecting the, uh, the document that our defense team will put together as soon as possible. Uh, you know, Obviously, we want it filed to move this forward and, and get Neil home, Unfortunately, we also want to make sure that it's um, as accurate as possible, so you have to balance the two off. We're, again, at this point, hoping it'll be before Christmas that Neil's home. What is the feeling in Indonesia? How is the public responding to this case? Uh, There has been a a massive change in the sentiment in uh, the populace overall. There are several independent groups, independent of the school and independent of our team, that have come together to really... Uh, fight for this injustice. You know, they've 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 seen the case uh, when it was first uh, uh, brought forward. There were a lot of concerns that actually something had happened, and now it's more about you know getting the truth out there. And again, this is a a case that has had no physical or medical evidence. Uh, there's there's nothing really to corroborate any of the accusations, and you know people want the truth to be heard. How is Neil doing? He's better now. He obviously went through a very tough time physically and mentally when he was rearrested in February. Um, several weeks went by, and you know Neil really had to obviously get used to the fact that he was going to be incarcerated for an undetermined point of uh, period of time. Um, but we've been able to get Neil settled in a cell where he's you know as as comfortable and safe as possible. And uh, you know the team, the, the machine that we've had working for us is has ramped back up, and we are moving forward on several fronts. And uh, you, you can tell just in, in, in talking to him that he is he's much stronger now. And, um, you know, he, he's looking to obviously put this behind him, but he understands that there's going to be some time before we get to that point. And how is Tracy, his wife, doing? Uh, Tracy's good. You know, she's an amazing woman who's been very strong throughout this. Uh, she's in Indonesia and is able to see Neil on a, on a daily basis, Monday to Friday, for a couple of hours. And 
she leads the team there and interacting with the school and the, the legal defense team and the PR company. So, again, she's uh, remaining as, as strong as possible also. Is anybody commenting on how long this seems to be taking? I mean, you know, considering what Neil's been through and there's still a question mark hovering over this case, is there? does anybody there seem to be in a hurry to resolve any of this? Well, I, I think they want to be seen to being as, to be as thoughtful as possible. And, uh, again, we want to be very careful that we don't seem to be you know, pushing this as, as or too quickly, we want to make sure that we uh, you know, give it its due time. But I think overall, when you when you sit down and you think, you know, well, two years ago when these allegations were made and what our initial thought the thoughts were at the time, uh, it is it is incredible. It, you know, it's only been two years, but I'll tell you, it, it does seem like ten years at times. I, I'm having a hard time believing it's been two years. How significant is this anniversary? How is Neil feeling in regard to this anniversary? Um, yeah, obviously, you know, it's, it's a, an auspicious date and it's, it's something we never thought we would actually mark. Uh, for us, it's, it's important that, you know, we, we show the, you know, the support and the love that we've received from Neil supporters and, you know, coming to Calgary was, was part of that. It was being able to, you know, be able to articulate to his supporters, you know, how Neil feels, update them on the case and, and say thank you. That, that's important because, in a case like this, where we know we've got several months ahead of us still, we, we do need the support of everyone around the world that we've received so far. And it's important that we um, that we are acknowledging what they've done for us also. You're in Calgary now. Talk about what's happening there tonight and what's happening in Toronto now. Uh, so tonight, uh, the, a vigil will be held um, at a location in downtown Calgary. And uh, we're hoping to have about 100 people out there and We'll, you know, update them as I said on the on the case and, and thank them. And uh, there'll be uh, a couple other people talking. There'll be a couple MPs that are there. Um, and it's really a, an opportunity for everyone who's been supporting Neil to come together and to, you know, to be together. Uh, today was, you know, a peaceful protest at the consulate, uh, the Indonesian consulate uh, on Jarvis Street in Toronto. And it was really to remind them that we have not forgotten about this case and that we will not rest until, you know, justice is heard and then Neil's returned home. What does the consulate say? What do those people say? We haven't had any feedback yet. Uh, I was actually in Ottawa over the uh, Victoria Day weekend, and I actually met with the Indonesian ambassador and a very frank conversation with him. And again, wanting them to, to know that, you know, we're, you know, as Canadians and law-abiding citizens, we expect certain things when it comes to a, a judicial process. And by no means have we been satisfied in, in this case whatsoever, and uh, that you know we weren't going to relent. And again, embassies have a responsibility to report back to you know their their government head offices, and, and um, that was done. I know that just from the feedback we get, not only from uh, from the team on the ground in Indonesia, but also through my government contacts here in Canada. Um, we we won't roll over. We won't be pushed around. We won't be bullied. We want the truth to come out, and we'll fight this until that occurs. Do they seem supportive? Do they seem cordial? Are they are they interested in the case? Um, I don't know if I'd use the word cordial. They uh, they were quite standoffish, I would say, when I approached the. Uh, it was a festival that was going on at the time, so I knew the ambassador was going to be there, and he wasn't really enamored with the thought of of talking to me. And even when we did have a chance to talk, he. He didn't act like he knew a lot about the case. He said, you know, what he knows is what he's seen in the media. You know, I know differently. I know what, um, what's happened, how he's been called into foreign affairs in, in Ottawa to, to talk about the case. And, um, and I said to him, you know, I, I have to disagree with your, your comments. You know more about this. And this is part of the issue. You know, there's, 
they they think they're playing a little bit of a game here, but there's a you know a, a man's life at stake here and a life that's been put on hold for several years. When you when you talk to a person like that face to face and you're looking them in the eye, what's that like? What's that reaction like? Uh, well, it's it's breathing, making sure I continue to breathe and realize that yeah. as much as uh, I'd like to take different action or say mm. different things, I, I've got to remain diplomatic. I I know that there's a game being played, and I need to get my point across and as uh, as um, diplomatic way as possible. Uh, getting angry, you know, getting aggressive, you know, while it might feel good for a moment, it's not going to help anybody, and you know, it's not going to help Neil at all. I guess what I, the point that I was making, guy, was you know when you're standing across from somebody and you're looking them in the eye, can they can they catch the human element? Do they understand the severity of it all? I mean, can you look at them, you know, from one human being to another, so to speak? Uh, I I think he understood, you know, where I was coming from and 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 that whole human emotion. Um, but I also believe that he was almost taken aback that I would approach him because right? uh-huh. I don't think that's something that they would encounter you know, mm-hmm. in Indonesia on a day-to-day basis and uh, that kind of put him on guard a little bit so it was you know it's a little bit of gamesmanship and I understand that but I think I got my message across and that, that was really my intent of, of talking to him how long how, how long was this encounter uh, I talked to him for about 20 minutes really um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was it was very you know surreal you know we're at City Hall in Ottawa it's got a festival on and They've got security people around us, and you know they're watching us. And it, it, it just—it was not what you expect. And it's funny after we left the event, we were talking. I was there with Janet. We were talking about it. She said, "You know, you, you almost feel you know watched or bullied in your own country." And by mm-hmm. no means am I going to let that happen. I think they've done that to my brother there. And you know, we are in Canada, and we have certain you know rules and guidelines. And I, I would expect anybody to have to abide by those. It must be incredibly hard to keep your emotions in check while you're both sitting there in Ottawa at this festival. He's enjoying what Canada is all about, and there's your brother sitting back in Indonesia in a prison cell. Yeah, it is. There's there's no question that you do feel, um, you know, it's it's a, it's a bad word to use, but you almost feel like a prisoner. You know, you're trying to you know you're trying to be articulate, and you're trying to get your message across, and you're trying to uphold, you know who we are as a people and what we come to expect and enjoy in our country. And then you've got someone who's is almost denying that. I know that what they've denied my brother, you know, that they're, you know, they're not acknowledging what they've done. And that, that is a very frustrating point for sure. Do you feel by making a personal connection with the ambassador that this helped? I mean, again, by just putting that human, the human face behind all of this? Yeah. You know, what he's read has been, uh, you know, about deal either in, you know, communiques from, from Indonesia themselves, or again, I'm sure he, he's, there's stuff in media or media releases that he sees. And again, you know, personalizing it, uh, looking him in the eye, you know, standing up and, and being accountable, letting my voice be heard, let my brother's voice be heard. That, that's very important. Absolutely. What about government help? How have they helped us? There's been a, a huge change in, in, you know, the government since, you know, the change in October. And, and not only at, at the government level, but also at the you know, the global affairs level. Uh, I have a meeting with global affairs every two weeks and get updates on what they're doing. Uh, I know that from a diplomatic point of view, anytime there's engagement between Canadians and Indonesian officials, this issue is raised, this case is raised. Uh, I know the calls that um, Minister Dion has made to his counterpart in Indonesia, those of uh, 
um, been successful. And again, they are aware that, you know, the Canadian government is standing up for their citizen. They're trying to push this case forward as diplomatically as possible. They're letting the Indonesians try and work their way out of this. But at the end of the day, if that doesn't work, they will... Uh, They'll bring the Indonesians to bear, and there'll be other uh, consequences and ramifications to, to move it forward. It seems that this is like, there's nothing quick about this process, guy. Everything just seems to be dragging out and dragging out. As you as you handle this on a day by day by day basis, do you really feel that the wheels are moving forward? Is something being done? Is the with, with all this waiting, is there work being done in the background? Yeah, I, I truly believe there is. Uh, I've had a number of meetings. I've been to Ottawa several times. I do feel it happens. Obviously, it doesn't happen on a daily basis. You know, sometimes a couple of weeks go by before you get some progress. Mm. But as long as we continue to see that progress, that's the important part. And again, this is—it's almost that hurry up and wait. You know, we want—we want to get a document filed. We want to get the process moving forward. And then we've got to wait for them because there are no time frames or no uh, deadlines that they have to work within. So, again, it's—it's it's staying positive. It's seeing the support. It's. It's hearing the words from the government and having the meetings that you, you do feel something is happening. Uh, as this drags on, does this become less about freeing Neil and, and, and more about Neil's already been there for two years? Uh, so, again, even when he does get off uh, and, and this sentence is, I guess, somewhat reduced, he still spent two years there at least. Yeah, I was asked a question like that earlier today and. Um, again, I, th- I think the goal is, as, as you say, it's to get Neil out of Indonesia and get back to Canada. And at that point, then we've got to think about, you know, the ramifications of, you know, two plus years of incarceration and a life put on hold for, for that period of time. And, mm. and a life that's been changed, you know, forever. You know, here's a person who went to work in another country, not only to, you know, for the experience, but also to give back and to participate and uh, you know, help with community outreach programs, Habitat for Humanity, and anything that helped, you know, the local community. And that's what Neil's done. And obviously, that that hasn't worked out in his favor at, at this point. And it's it's too bad because it was someone who was dedicated to the betterment of people overall. Any advice for anyone who's like Neil, who wants to do things like this? I mean, uh, like you said, Big Heart always wants to help. Um, but how do you how do you balance that with your own safety and what could possibly happen in one of these countries? I, I think the biggest for me is you know going into situations with eyes wide open. Um, you know, if, if someone had said this to me five years ago, I would never believe them because I think as Canadians, you feel you've got a certain level of um, of protection that you'll be afforded. That legal systems are the same. That the requirement for evidence and judicial process is the same. And that's not the case. So, again, you know, I, I don't think you can be a cynic and say, well, you know, unless you stay in your own country, you're, you're always going to put yourself at risk. Mm. Uh, you know, you need to go into situations and understand history and the way a political system works and, the, the, you know, how much corruption is in a country. Going in with that sort of information is important. It, it helps you adopt and, and understand what you're potentially getting yourself into. Is this case still top of mind in Indonesia? Yeah, there are several, as I said, in, in um, internal groups that are, are moving this forward. There are articles, you know, several articles a week in the uh, the two national uh, Indonesian papers. Uh, this has not gone away. You know, they're talking about, you know, eight individuals. You're still talking about, you know, the, the largest and the most uh, recognized school in the country. Uh, you're, you're talking about foreign nationals. 
it, it's still got all those details. The the lawsuit for 125 million dollars it's still floating out there now. Mm. It hasn't gone away. So there's there's still a lot going on with this case overall. Uh, how does the government get out of this and save face? I mean, how do they, even at this point, after two years, how do they say, oh, okay, Neil, you're free to go? I think it's really going to come down to the the way the judicial review is perceived. Um, there are three components. One looks at the the work that the judges did on the, the other trials, including the Supreme Court. The second is the legal process that was followed. And the third is any new evidence. And I really think that third pillar is where there's an opportunity for the Supreme Court to look at the case and say, well, you know, this wasn't brought forward or this was interpreted incorrectly or um, the information didn't make sense at the time. But when you, you know, add this piece of information to it, it allows us to come to a different conclusion. Any other way to attack this really then throws either judges or the judicial process under the bus, and I don't think that's what they want to have happen. They want something new that they can hang their hat on and say, yep, this is why we changed our decision. This is what made a difference in how we made our decision. Uh, Explain to people Neil's Calgary connection. So Neil uh, moved to Calgary once he um, got his teaching degree, and uh, he spent several years here in Calgary. It's where he met Tracy, and it's where they departed from in 2008. Seven to head to Singapore and then on to Indonesia. So it was kind of his last, uh, the, the last area he taught in uh, in Canada. Uh, is there a way you think? Do you think for the Indonesian government, as you mentioned, to I don't know, maybe come up with a new set of processes or procedures or policy or such, so when this does happen, that they can say, "See, we've uh, we did this, but as a result of this, we've learned, and and here's how we're going to." Uh, handle these sorts of cases moving forward? Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's one of those situations where there's that balance between, you know, an accusation and, you know, I'm not going to comment on what's behind the accusation, but it, it has to be backed up not just with the you know, the testimony of, of a child or of an adult that wasn't, you know, present at, if, at an event that occurred, but they have to mix that and marry that with with medical tests, they need to listen to doctors and psychologists, and they need to look listen to their investigators, and they need to make sure that not only do the allegations make sense, but is there physical and medical evidence that backs up the allegations? And I think that's been that's been sorely lacking in this case, and that's critical to make the correct decision in future cases. You were talking about the lawsuit, which is still hanging over this. Uh, what can you tell us about the family that brought that uh, uh, forward, and have we heard any more from them? Uh, unfortunately, the, the the families that have brought these allegations forward have all left Indonesia. Uh, they've departed for different countries um, in Europe. The, the lawsuit, ironically, was brought forward by one of the mothers uh, in conjunction with a lawyer who was subsequently arrested, tried, and convicted on corruption charges himself. He was, um, he was videotaped um, dropping off uh, a bag of money to uh, another court in, a, in an unrelated case. Um, so, again, it's, it's ripe with, you know, questions and concerns on, on how, um, how true that, that uh, case is and how that's going to play out. But, again, it's a lawsuit that's against the school, and the school is going to... Uh, uh, vigorously defend themselves in, in that sort of matter. How much of that lawsuit is a factor in all of this, do you think? Well, the 
it's interesting because I think what's happened now is you've got the Supreme Court and the Judicial Review, which is really ahead of the civil case. But if you kind of look at it from both sides, if the Supreme Court has said, well, yes, he was guilty, and now you've got this lawsuit, it, it, it lends credence to the lawsuit, and that's what we have to kind of manage against mm. at this point. So it's, it's, um, you know, it's, a, it's a fine line that we're walking down from that perspective. What can we do here to help? Again, I think the support we've had from Canadians and around the world has been phenomenal. But, uh, you know, remembering to, you know, talk to your MPs about it or your MPPs about it, you know, writing to foreign affairs or global affairs and making sure that they're aware that, you know, Canadians have not forgotten about Neil and they want to see justice in this case. So that's, that's the most poignant um, medium at this point to get your uh, message across. Today marks the two-year anniversary of Neil Bantelman's arrest in Indonesia. A protest is occurring right now outside the Indonesian consulate in Toronto to draw attention to the situation tonight. A vigil in Calgary will be held. Guy Bantelman has been with his brother of Neil Bantelman, the Canadian teacher imprisoned in Indonesia, and he is in Calgary tonight for that vigil. Guy, thank you very much for the time and insight. Uh, Any way we can help, let us know, and uh, good luck. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. As the Brexit saga continues, Theresa May has been busy within her first few hours of being Prime Minister. One of the first tasks was naming Boris Johnson as the Foreign Minister, uh, who, of course, has been a controversial figure in his own right. To talk more about all of this, Victoria Honeyman is with us, lecturer in British politics at the University of Leeds, and is with us now. Hello, Victoria. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. Uh, what is the feeling in the UK today now that a new, la- uh, new leader has been installed? How are people feeling? Uh, to be honest with you, there's been an incredible sense of shock across the UK pretty much since the Brexit uh, vote on the 23rd of June. Um, it's absolute chaos here. That's how it feels. We're not used to these kind of political storms. And there's so much happening all at once. But to be completely honest with you, we're a little bit shell-shocked by it all. I would hope that from this point onwards we would see a little bit of calm entering because we, we do need a bit of stability. We need to try and figure out what to do now. But at the moment, it's, you know, the hits just keep on coming. So why has the installment of Theresa May um, not settled things down a bit, not stabilized thing, uh, things? Even watching her speech, it looked like things were quite positive. It might well settle things down, but inevitably when we change a prime minister, even if the party remains the same in the United Kingdom, things have to change. The personnel have to change, and very often the direction of policy can, can if not change entirely, it certainly is finessed in a different way. So for the next couple of days, we're going to see the announcement of more junior ministers and uh, parliamentary private secretaries, and things will begin to settle down. But yesterday and today, with the announcement of the big beast of government, it's been quite chaotic. Are Brits feeling that this is the best person to be in charge as they enter into these negotiations with the uh, EU? It's very difficult to know, realistically. The way that the British governmental system is set up, we don't vote for individuals as in a leader, we Mm. vote for a party. So the Conservative Party won a a working majority in the House of Commons in uh, 2015, and they have until 2020 uh, to run on their time in office, unless there is is some massive cataclysmic, even larger event than there currently has been. Therefore, she didn't win in a vote with the public. She, She essentially won in an internal race within the Conservative Party. And she actually went through 
several rounds of voting until it got down to the final two. And at that point, her contender, Andrea Leadsom, pulled out. So she hasn't even been voted in by the majority of the Conservative Party members. That being said, the Labour Party, which is the other large party in the United Kingdom, are having a terrible time of it themselves. The parliamentary element of that party is pulling away from the wider party over issues regarding their leader. So realistically, they're in a terrible state of affairs as well. So realistically... Theresa May is a bit of a port in a storm for us at the moment. Hmm. Whether she'll end up being very successful longer term will very much depend on her own performance. What can you tell us about the personality of Theresa May? How, how would she compare to David Cameron as a leader? David Cameron was generally considered to be uh, quite a media-savvy young leader. And he positioned himself in the, the centre of the Conservative Party, uh, which made him a, a relatively central figure. The Conservative Party in the UK is usually off towards the right of, of politics, perhaps a little bit like the Democrats in the United, uh, in the United States. Um, Theresa May is to the right of David Cameron. So she tends to um, be more in favour of strong law and order, uh, issues relating to stronger controls of immigration, for example. As an individual, we don't actually know all that much about Theresa May. She's been in government, she's been the Home Secretary um, since the beginning of the coalition in 2010. And prior to that, she had worked as a, as a shadow minister when the Conservative Party had been in opposition. But she's not a very media-savvy individual. She's not very well-known outside of Westminster circles. What we do know about her is that she is steely, she is determined, she's a very smart politician, she knows where she wants to go and she's determined to get there. Looking at the events of today, we've also seen a massive throw out of cabinet, and um, it's been nicknamed the kind of you know the night of the long knives. It's been the morning of the butcher's block over here. So realistically, we also know that she is not afraid to be ruthless when ruthlessness is called for. And I think we'll probably see those those issues over the coming weeks and months with negotiations with our EU partners as they are now to try and get the best possible deal that they can get for the United Kingdom. Are Brits convinced that this is the person to get that good deal? Is she the person, the right person for this job? Because obviously this is, you know, this isn't a typical job for any prime minister. Uh, anybody that walks into this is certainly walking into a hornet's nest. Do do Brits feel confident yeah, that she can do a good deal? Chalice of a job at the moment with lots and lots of challenges that come with it. And polling seems to suggest that the British public back Theresa May, that they have far more confidence in her than they do in any of the other names that were put forward, either as part of the Conservative Party race or within the Labour Party in terms of their leader. So she does seem to be the person. But actually, we have to be, be kind of think a little wider than this. She is the Prime Minister, but she has appointed a team to surround her. Boris Johnson, you already mentioned, is the new Foreign Secretary. We have a gentleman called David Davis, who is going to be the, the Minister in charge of Brexit negotiations. And we also have Liam Fox, who is going to be part of the new Department for International Trade. These are three pro-Brexit individuals who fought very hard for Brexit. And essentially, she's put them in charge of negotiations. She's told them, you wanted this? you go out and get the best possible deal that you can. Hmm. So it isn't just about Theresa May, it's about the people she's surrounding herself with. Surprised that Boris Johnson was named Foreign Secretary? Yes, I was extremely surprised. I think pretty much everybody was. And um, his political capital after the uh, Brexit vote was very high. But within a matter of days, um, he was beginning to lose momentum and, and essentially pulled out of the, the Conservative Party leadership race, which Theresa May eventually won. So realistically, he was, he was not expected to get a particularly high-ranking job. Added to which, while he may be very well-known, he isn't necessarily renowned for being particularly... Um, 
politically correct or even particularly nice. He's had some terrible gaffes when he's been referring to individuals from other countries. Um, he's made some terrible mistakes and all of these kind of things are now beginning to come back to haunt him a little bit. So he does have political ability. He's a smart politician, but he also has the ability to unfortunately put his foot in his mouth. So it was rather a surprising appointment. Do you think he pulled out of uh, running for the PM's position because he knew he'd get a position such as this within May's government? to know, but I think that's quite unlikely. Anybody who saw uh, Boris Johnson when he gave the speech at which he announced he was not going to stand as leader would come to the conclusion that he really didn't necessarily think about this. Um, there seemed to have been an internal dispute between him and Michael Gove, who um, at that particular time was Justice Secretary um, and was also very, very much in the, the uh, Brexit camp. It seemed to be that a deal had been done early on that, that Boris Johnson would stand and at the last minute Michael Gove turned around and essentially knifed him in the back and told him that he was going to stand instead. Mm-hmm. And Boris Johnson appeared very, very sore about this and very unhappy. I think it was that that precipitated him pulling out of the race rather than any possible dangling of a good job by any of the other candidates. As you mentioned, he's publicly criticised a lot of those he will be working with in his new post. Does he have the ability to mend fences? Um, yeah, I mean, Theresa May clearly thinks that he can. I would sincerely hope that he can. Um, but he does have a habit of, of letting his mouth run away with him ever so slightly. And that simply is not going to work as Foreign Secretary. So I think that certain individuals internationally will probably be relatively forgiving of him. Um, you know, it's one thing when you don't have a position of authority or necessarily a, a particular international role, although he was London Mayor before this, so he did have that international role. But I think people will be willing to, to forgive him to get to a point. There comes a point where if you make a habit of this kind of thing, people begin to be an awful lot less forgiving. Uh, How will the European Union view him in his position, especially with the Brexit vote? How involved with that in those negotiations will he be? We're not entirely sure how involved he's going to be. There is an expectation that the Foreign Office will probably be beefed up. And the Foreign Office is, is not a particularly high-spending department. Um, most of the money that goes overseas comes out of the Department of International Development and goes to developing nations. So the Foreign Office budget really focuses on things like embassies, etc., etc. Um, so realistically, there is an argument that in the light of the Brexit vote, they will have to have more money. They'll have to beef up their, their presence in, in many nations where they simply haven't needed to have such a strong presence of late. It appears that individuals in Germany and France are willing to work with him. They've been very measured in their response. They have suggested, for example, I know that the, the German foreign minister suggested that the appointment of Boris Johnson has been a surprise um, and that he believes that it is, it is part of Theresa May's wider game plan in terms of, of her internal party politics. But there have been suggestions that they're happy to work with him. They're happy to see what they can do. Realistically, the call from the EU is that they want Britain to get on with the negotiations as far as Brexit is concerned. They do not want a situation where Britain dawdles or essentially kind of, you know, wanders about for a little while when they think about what to do. So realistically, they're happy to work with just about anybody if they can get those negotiations going. Any more rumblings of those wanting to leave the European Union or even Scotland? What, what, What has resonated out of that story of late? There's an awful lot going on in Scotland at the moment. Um, obviously, there was a referendum in 2014 where it was decided that by the Scottish people that they would remain part of the union. And there were very, various promises that were put forward as part of that referendum campaign, which the British government under David Cameron set about enacting uh, more money, more power. Um, 
However, the issue of Brexit threw everything into the mix again because while the Scottish National Party, who are the, the dominant party at Holyrood, the, the Scottish, uh, Scottish Parliament, and also have um, a large number of MPs in Westminster, um, while they always talked about another referendum, they desperately wanted one, the Brexit vote gave them a legitimate reason to call for it again. They argued that the Scottish people had been sold a vision of the United Kingdom, where Britain was a member of the EU. If Britain was no longer a member of the EU, something which the Scottish people did not vote for, then actually that changed the terms of the deal and they wanted another referendum. Nicola Sturgeon has been very vocal about her desire to have some kind of guarantees put forward for the Scottish people. But the direction of travel for Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP is to demand a second referendum. And at the moment, she is investigating what the reality of the situation is going to be, and she's also investigating how likely the SNP are to win. She is also a very astute politician. She's not going to go for a second referendum if she doesn't think that she can win it. So there's been an awful lot going on with Scotland of late. How, uh, how concerned is Theresa May over Scotland, or is she more focused on what's going to happen with the EU? She has to be focused on what's going on with Brexit. It is the number one issue that is going on in this country. But it's very interesting that one of the last things that David Cameron said at the dispatch box in the House of Commons when he was finishing off his final Prime Minister's questions, and one of the first things that Theresa May said when she arrived at Downing Street after being appointed the new Prime Minister was with regard to the union. Theresa May specifically mentioned that the Conservative Party's full title is the Conservative and Unionist Party, and she made specific reference to the importance of the union. The Conservative Party, by nature, do not support um, anything relating to the separation of the United Kingdom. They weren't in favour of devolution when it was put forward by the Blair government. And therefore, while she is concerned with Brexit, and she is obviously going to be dominating, uh, that's obviously going to be dominating her mind, there is no doubt that she's going to do everything in her, pos- in her power possible to try and prevent Scotland from essentially pulling away from the rest of the United Kingdom. That's clearly not something that she wants to happen on any watch, but certainly not on her watch. How are people in the UK feeling about uh, David Cameron leaving? Uh, obviously, with his last day yesterday and the tributes that were coming out and, and even the speech that he made in the House, uh, it seemed quite jovial, hardly the place that it was a couple of weeks ago when it was so divided. It, it's, it was quite a contrast to what we've seen. David Cameron was always extremely good uh, at the dispatch box. Prior to being uh, an MP, he was a political advisor for the Conservative Party in the Treasury. He spent an awful lot of time at Westminster, at Whitehall, and he really excelled when he got in front of that dispatch box. He gave some of his, you know, his best speeches when he was at that dispatch box. It was a very jovial um, attitude in, the, in an environment in the House of Commons at Prime Minister's Question Times yesterday. He really used the opportunity to really kind of showboat a little bit about the things that he could do and to really try and define his legacy. However, having said that, there was an awful lot of individuals, both within the Conservative Party and outside, who were not that happy with David Cameron's performance. They didn't think that the economic situation was progressing as strongly as it could have done. They didn't think that he was going far enough. There were a lot of individuals in the centre and the left who believed that um, the the price of austerity was being paid on the backs of the poor, on the backs of the disabled and the disadvantaged. So the, the kind of collective loving that we tend to have for Prime ministers when they leave, particularly when they leave mid-term, shouldn't be confused with individuals actually having genuine grievances with David Cameron. So he got his moment in the sun, and, and that's always a kind of nice showpiece moment. But 
it's really for history to judge David Cameron as to how effective he was as a prime minister. He certainly managed some incredible things and some very positive things. For example, at the legalisation of gay marriage in Britain is usually considered one of his greatest achievements, one of the biggest things that he did. But there will be others who would judge him more harshly on, on his economic record. It was. I found it interesting when he said uh, something to the to the effect of, "I was once the future," and everybody started laughing. Will his legacy be Brexit? Do you think at the end, when 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 the history books are written, will it be all about Brexit? When uh, referring to David Cameron? Yes, it will. It was very interesting. The quote that you mentioned about his last line was, "You know, I used to be the future once." It was actually a, a jibe at himself. He said that across the dispatch box to Tony Blair in his first speech at as leader of the Conservative Party, he pointed at Tony Blair and said, you used to be the future once. So it was, a, it was a jive against himself. But Brexit will undoubtedly be his legacy. There is no doubt that he essentially bet the ranch and it didn't come off. And it will be the defining feature of, of, his, of his time in office. It will be interesting to see how harsh are the history books judging if Britain goes from strength to strength, if our economy improves, if Brexit ends up being a success, David Cameron will be treated less harshly than if everything begins to come crashing down. So realistically, it's in Theresa May's hands as to how that legacy is, is going to be moulded in the coming years. You bring up a very valid point. I mean, what happens in the next decade will determine how history, uh, uh, I guess, addresses all of this. Could, in the end, if, if Britain... Is has success in the next decade, that he, he's viewed as a hero for this? I'm not entirely sure that he'd be considered to be a hero, maybe more of an accidental hero, mm. somebody who accidentally ended up doing the right thing. Because, you know, David Cameron clearly did not want this. He right. did not want Britain to leave the mm. European Union. Um, and there were a number of individuals at Westminster, probably more pro-Remainers than, than leavers, who also did not want this. So, and, you know, the cataclysm that I mentioned right at the beginning of our talk has been absolutely enormous. You know, we've lost leaders of parties. We've, you know, experienced a massive shake-up in this country, and we continue to feel the repercussions. So he might be considered an accidental hero, but I don't think anybody's going to attribute this to a deliberate path, which is generally what you need to, to kind of, you know, get the, get the credit for anything good that happens. Mm, good point. Victoria Honeyman has been with us, lecturer in British politics at the University of Leeds talking about Theresa May being installed as the next Prime Minister and naming Boris Johnson as her Foreign Minister. Victoria, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Remember when uh, pot-bellied pigs were the big thing? It seemed to be a craze a few years ago where everybody was getting these little guys and then the unfortunate thing was they would get bigger and then people weren't didn't want them as much. Uh, they're cute when they're little piglets running around, but as they get bigger, uh, it's a bit of a different story. But a neighbor complaint is forcing one Hamilton family fighting to keep their pot-bellied pig. Uh, pigs in Hamilton are bylaw banned unless they were grandfathered in prior to this rule in 2012. To talk more about all of this, owner of Sheldon the Pig, uh, Diane Hines is with us, owns Lazy Daisy Animal Haven and is with us now. Hello, Diane. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for taking the time to join us. What is the Lazy Daisy Animal Haven? Uh, well, about 12 years ago, my husband and I noticed that there was a huge need for um, a hospice or palliative care for old and sick animals. 
these are usually the guys who end up in shelters or rescues or unfortunately abandoned in the countries or the side of the road. Uh, they tend to need a lot of care uh, or they're just no fun anymore as some people see them. And so my husband and I opened up our doors and started working with a lot of different rescues. And um, so that's who we care for now is old and sick animals needing um, a good restful home. And you operate this in your home on the mountain? At the moment, yes. Yes, we do. And how many animals would you have there? Uh, we only have four because that's what the city allows us to have. So we can only, unfortunately, take up to four at a time. Uh, this kind of uh, situation that's come upon us has really lit a fire under my husband and I. And we have made a decision that definitely within the next year we'll be going out into a rural area so that we can take in... Um, you know, as, as many as we can and, and, you know, up our numbers a little bit. These guys are in desperate need of, of care right now. So what el- other animals do you have there other than Sheldon? Uh, we have a bloodhound, a, um, a bulldog, and an American Eskimo as well. And these are all dogs that are ill, is that correct? Yeah, they're either ill or, in the case of our bloodhound, Penny, she uh, she unfortunately came up from the States through uh, Bloodhound Rescue of Ontario, and she was so severely beaten and malnutrition that uh, that's another type of animal that we'll take is if they're not necessarily uh, dying, but they've just been through some extreme trauma. Uh, we will, as well, keep those ones because we, we just don't feel it's fair to rehome them again and put them through another situation. Mm. So tell us about Sheldon. How did you get Sheldon? Sheldon actually came about, he, uh, he was in care with one of my family members, a cousin of mine, and um, he, he did start to get a little bit bigger, and then he started to show that he was actually not all that well. So she reached out to us and asked if we would mind helping her out and maybe um, taking Sheldon, which we said, of course, no problem. We had room at the time. And um, knowing that, you know, this could potentially run into a, a bit of a medical situation, and it did. Um, Sheldon's little plumbing, unfortunately, didn't form properly, and it ended up costing my husband and I about over $6,000 in surgeries and veterinarian care. Wow. Uh, and, and how big is this pig now? Shelly, uh, he's probably about 70 pounds now, so he's a little taller than a, a blood or a basset hound, mm-hmm. uh, but he's a bit of a low runner. They've got short little legs, so yeah, he's about, <laughs> about 70 pounds now. And does he live in the house? Sheldon lives wherever he wants to. Uh, he is treated like actually just one of the family. Uh, he has many beds throughout the house, but he is more than welcome to sleep on the bed with us if he wishes. He likes to sit on the couch, and his favorite shows are Ellen and Judge Judy. Uh, so he, uh, if he hears those or, you know, he's being cranky, he sits on his chair. Uh, yeah, no, our house, we've built a very large ramp from the basement to the main floor so that he would be able to walk up and down safely and, and easily. So, no, he's he's an indoor pig and got full run of everything. He's an indoor pig. <laughs> he is an indoor pig, yes. so what's a little it, bit of a prince. <laughs> so what's it like to have a pig in your house? It's pretty fabulous, and it's actually very funny. Um, pigs are extremely misunderstood, and that's what we're hoping through this uh, little campaign, that people will take the time to at least, you know, just, just, listen and, and maybe even come meet Sheldon or meet a pig. They're funny. They they chat away to you. They have a great personality. And one of the biggest misconceptions is they are so clean. Sheldon is better house trained than our dogs. Um, he'll just go to the door and, and grunt and we let him out. 
Um, in the winter, he has like a, a pee pad uh, litter box. So if it is too cold, he just uses that in the meantime. Um, but they really sleep a lot. So, you know, they, they like routine. They like their food. <laughs> and they like their sleep. What do you, so that, what do you feed Sheldon? Uh, they have a special pig pellet uh, that covers all the nutrition and vitamins and minerals that pigs do have to have. So he gets um, a couple cups of that, and then he gets a very large bowl of fruits and vegetables every single day, and he also gets uh, juice. Wow. Another treat. So because of his surgeries and his condition, his uh, he has to be monitored very, very, very carefully. Otherwise, we will be back in the hospital very quickly. Uh, you talked about miss pigs are, are pigs are misunderstood. Is the cleanliness issue the big misunderstand the biggest misunderstanding? I think so. I think people are terrified that if these guys are allowed back in the city, you know, we're going to smell like the country. It's going to be horrendous. We're going to have all these horrible yucky smells floating around, and that's just not true. Pigs don't sweat except through their snouts. So they're not smelly creatures. There's no odor to a pig. Uh, and as far as their mess, they hate being dirty. So um, neglect of a pig would be the same as neglect of an animal for smell, but otherwise, no. They, they themselves do not have a scent that, that can spread. How, how, how does it compare to having a dog as a pet? Ooh, <laughs> I, I'm not going to lie to anybody and say, hey, these are really, really easy. Go get one. They're not. Pigs are the fourth smartest creature on the planet. Uh, I think they think they're the first. Um, and it's almost like having a four-year-old child that constantly goes, but why? But why? Um, they know what they want to learn. Um, they're very intelligent. Sheldon has tricks. He comes when he's called. Uh they're just yeah. They're just so smart. How do um, how do the other pets in the house uh, act or react to Sheldon? They actually love him. Uh, again, the bloodhound that we rescued—that's actually her pig. When Sheldon was really really sick, uh, Penny didn't leave his side. She sat with him. She she cuddled him. She she was even protective over him. Uh, he plays with them. He runs after them. They chase him. Uh, the other thing, though, is he is a prey animal, and dogs are predators. So I would tell anybody who was even considering it, if you have dogs, they can never, ever be left alone because the instinct will take over and, and the pig will get hurt. So mm. Sheldon has um, areas where he can go and the dogs can't when we're not around. Wow. Uh, so how, how did this problem come about with uh, uh, the bylaw officers and, and people complaining and such? How, how did this all start? Um, we apparently had, there was a couple things that were brought to their attention. One was somebody at one point thought we had 12 dogs, uh, which is not the case. Unfortunately, because of the work we do with the hospice, I completely understand where somebody would think that. Um, they might see more dogs coming in, but a lot of our dogs and, or animals in general are sometimes only with us a few weeks up to maybe a year, and then they, you know, we know we're in that stretch. Um, they then made a complaint about, you know, I think there's a pig there as well. Sheldon has been in the city since 2011, and the animal control are being absolutely wonderful, giving us a chance to give some documentation, which we will be doing in the next uh, couple days. So Sheldon may be grandfathered in yet, but we really still want to get in front of council and really just ask people, please, before you make a judgment, if you've never met a pig, please, please just you know, contact one of us with them or go to Ralphie's retreat or look up Esther the Wonder Pig or somebody and, and just 
just see how incredible these animals really are. They're not farm animals. They're not. Uh, so is there hope that uh, because you, you, you got uh, Sheldon prior to the t- uh, 2012, I guess, bylaw uh, coming into play, that this will be grandfathered in? Uh, you, can you provide the paperwork? Are you confident that, that he would be allowed to stay? Um, I wouldn't say I'm confident because I never, ever want to say or make up somebody's mind or put words in their mouth. As I said, um, the supervisor for animal control has been extremely wonderful. Uh, we've been in contact, and he said there's just a couple pieces of documentation he would like to see. Uh, one, the vet bills to, you know, just see that we really actually have put that much money into Sheldon. And as well, um, a statement from the person we got him from that said, no, he has actually been in the city. We apologize, and we know we did the wrong thing by maybe not obtaining that license right away. But honestly, it was day-to-day. We didn't even know if Sheldon was going to be with us um, for the next morning. So we were a little tiny bit preoccupied with that. So we do apologize, and we apologize to the city and to the animal control. Um, You know, we're asking for leniency, and we understand that we were in the wrong to begin with. So we're hoping that, you know, some leniency can be granted. And then please, again, maybe the city council will allow me to speak, and uh, we can maybe get this ban reversed. Any idea who complained? No. No, um, we won't know until... uh, the the subject will end up going to court, and that's when the name will be um, brought forward to us. They they will be asked if they want to see us in court. Um, so eventually we will know, but at this point we don't know. So at this point you're talking about uh, leaving anyway and going to a, a larger place out in the country where you can facilitate more animals. Is that correct? Yes, yes. We'd really like Lazy Daisy Animal Haven to expand now and, and become um, a lot more useful. Uh, so, uh, where is this now? How, how is this sitting with the bylaw officers? What has to be done? What is the short-term future for Sheldon? Uh, short-term, what it means is, uh, we should have all the documentations as of tomorrow morning. Um, we are just, we're stopping by to, uh, to get a couple other pieces that we've booked appointments for. So hopefully by tomorrow or at least Monday, um, Sheldon, we are praying, will be granted that license and, and grandfathered in, um, if not, then I guess it'll be up to animal control to give us a time frame to get out of this. Well, they want us to get rid of Sheldon. That'll never, ever, I, I won't part with my babies. They're, they're mine. They're my babies. So uh, my husband and I will just put it into a full gear and, and see how quick we can vacate the city and sell our house. Where does he sleep? Wherever he wants. No. <laughs> um, that's, that's almost literally wherever he wants. He has uh, pigs like to nest, and they like lots of blankets to be covered up in. So he has about three spots in the house on different floors where he can do that. But if he's having kind of a lonely night, uh, many a times I've woken up to a uh, you know be nose to snout. <laughs> <laughs> uh, does he get outside for a walk? Do you have to walk him like a dog? Oh, Sheldon, uh, in the backyard, we have quite a large backyard, and he has a swimming pool. He has a vegetable garden and a fruit garden that he goes through. Um, but he's been to the drive-in. We do take him down to the the hutches on the beach sometimes to go down there and say hello. And wherever we've ever taken him, he's always, always been welcomed. And uh, usually my husband and I just sit down and let people do pictures and talk to him. They have no interest in us. Have you ever received any negative sort of response from anybody or anybody in your neighborhood? Not once. Not. This is why this came as a complete shock to us. 
And, you know, we were we were hoping that maybe instead of, you know, doing it that route, they could just come and talk to us and say, hey, could we find out a little bit more why, you know, what's your pig all about? Um, we have had a couple neighbors come over and say, oh, please, please bring them over. We want to meet them. And we have on request, um, he's got a little harness and walked him around. So, so we were actually really kind of taken aback that this landed in our lap the way it did. So uh, why do you think people did complain? Or a person, or we don't know it yet, but wh- why do you think a complaint was filed? I, we honestly don't know. We, um, we've been in the neighborhood 16 years. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've been in this house and purchased it in 2000, and I, I've never in those 16 years even had a bad word with a neighbor. We've always, always been recognized in our neighborhood because of the work we do with animals. Uh, we don't know. We honestly, at this point, don't know what was the, the need to do it this way. So we all know what it's like sitting around the kitchen table when we're eating and there's dogs in the house. They're always hanging around. Does Sheldon sit there and wait to be tossed a morsel every so often? Oh, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, no, he, he, he doesn't wait to be tossed a morsel. He <laughs> <laughs> Sheldon is right in there with the, the other doggy snout. There's noses and, and yeah, he's pushing forward. So uh, pigs can be a little forward when they want to be. They certainly let you know their presence is here. Uh, they will talk to you. They they kind of do a, an adorable little grunt and talk to you the whole time. So, um, yep, no, he he definitely pushes his way in just like everybody else. <laughs> I, I have to ask you this question, uh, Diane. Do you eat bacon? I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> I am a very strict vegan, so okay. no, I I don't eat any. So it's not all. like it's not like all of a sudden Sheldon, you know, what the heck's that? What's going on in the kitchen? <laughs> We, we've had lots of people ask us that, have you ever, and, and we know from the other pig pages, there are people who do still, and, and you know, they will feed their pig bacon once in a while, but pigs, uh, pigs will, that is not a myth, they will eat anything you put in front of them, so yeah. um, they, you do have to be careful what falls in front of that mouth. <laughs> What's the biggest challenge of having a pig as a pet? Uh, the initial training, um, and this is where we would encourage anybody where people are saying, oh, the city will be overrun. No, please, if you're looking at getting a pig, call or t- contact one of us with a pig already. Um, because they are intellectually smart and emotional, they challenge you. So when you are teaching, you know, to go outside and housebreaking, they know and they challenge, um, even treats, tricks. And when they don't want to do something, the brakes are on. So, um, you know, I've always put it, it's like having a very small child that is having a temper tantrum and you've just got, can't yell at them, can't can't handle them that way with a dog. You know, you've got to reason with them. Mm. Uh, So that would be your biggest challenge is because they're intellectually smart, you know, please know that it's an uphill battle sometimes to train them. How old is Sheldon and how long do pigs live? Uh, he will be five this year, and they live uh, about the same as a dog, between 15 to 17 years is mm-hmm. average lifespan for uh, for these little guys. Now, what what type of pig is this? Is this, because we all remember the craze of a few years ago, uh, you know, everybody wanted little pot-bellied pigs and such. I mean, is this the same pig that you would find in a farm situation, or is this a different breed? 
They are a completely different breed. Uh, the commercial pigs um, people have, and again, if you're going to look for a pig, please do your research. Ask to see the parents. Ask to do a lot of back-checking uh, because some people do get duped into thinking they have a Vietnamese potbelly pig, and they don't. They have a full-size commercial pig. Um, so this is probably, you know, part of the reason the ban came about, too, is in the height of the craze, breeders were not being honest. They were they were being a little uh, shady. So, um, you know, just just do your research and know that you're getting a Vietnamese potbelly pig. Um, and there is no such thing as a teacup pig or a quote unquote mini pig. They a teacup pig. I love it. A teacup pig. Teacup pig. That's hilarious. That set the whole thing off. I guess when the movie Babe and a couple other things were out, everybody wanted these teacup pigs and. That is the joke of the century. There is no such thing as a teacup pig. They will get to at least fifty to seventy pounds, and then over that. So it's not going to say the size. It's not going to stay the size of a toy poodle for long. No, no, not even a little bit. No, they they do grow up, and and like I said, minimum the average we see is seventy to one twenty. Uh, but some of them can get you know if you overfeed them, they will get to one fifty, one seventy. But it's all in diet and keeping them healthy and keeping them the proper weight. What does it cost you to feed this thing a week? Uh, Sheldon's not too too bad because what we do is go to all the grocery stores and get all the. Uh, you know, the fruits and vegetables that are sitting there on the, the day-old stuff. Right. Uh, his feed, his pellets are probably about $100 a month, and then um, the fruits and veggies. And then, of course, we grow um, all summer out back fruits and vegetables so that we can stock up for the winter, too, with Sheldon. And so this pig is smaller than what a standard pig would be. A pot-bellied pig is, doesn't grow as big as, as your typical farm animal. Not even close. No, the average farm animal, you're you're starting to push 300, 400. Even in the case of um, Esther the Wonder Pig, she's about 650 pounds now. Um, <laughs> and she's an inside pig. Uh, but, no, on average, they stay from 70 to 120. Um, but we still want everybody, you know, please do your do due diligence. Know how big they get. Go visit one and, and make sure you're ready for that much Pork. <laughs> let me ask. Let me ask you this question, Diane. Do you should there be a bylaw against having these things in your home in the city? The um, little guys, no. The Vietnamese potbellies and the mini pigs, no. The commercial pigs, definitely. Farm pig, one hundred percent. That would be like bringing a horse home. That would be silly. Um, but I don't honestly believe these should be banned. They're safer. They're quieter. There's absolutely no health risk. Um, you're never going to hear of a child mauled by a pig, a mini pig. Mm. Uh, they can't bite head on. They're just they're completely different from a dog in that sense. That well, almost five years, nobody knew he was here while we were doing his surgeries. So, um, when, when do you think you're going to finally know Sheldon's fate? Uh, we're hoping either tomorrow or Monday, uh, just depending on when I can get the paperwork to uh, Mr. Potts tomorrow, if I can get them to him tomorrow or Monday. I want to get them to him ASAP because I haven't breathed properly since mm. Monday. So, um, And his name I, is Mr. Potts? Yes, yes. Well, how ironic is all of that? <laughs> <laughs> Diane Hines has been with us, owner of Sheldon the Pig, owns Lazy Daisy Animal Haven up in the mountain, and uh, a complaint is forcing a lot of investigation and a lot of looking back for paperwork so uh, Sheldon can stay in the home. Diane, thanks very much. We'll be watching the story. Thanks for the time. Thank you so much for letting us speak. The 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.